And we're live. Mike, how you doing? I'm well, David. Nice to see you again. It's good to see you. It's good to see you as well. Um, while we uh, have people trickle in, I want to remember to welcome uh, all the people that are going to be watching this in the replay because it's going to be available on the YouTube channel afterwards. And oh, I already see we have some people popping up. Hey, everyone. And um, so, okay, so I, I'm tuned in today, Mike, because I heard a rumor that you know all about these private equity groups. And before we get into that, why don't we have a little bit of an introduction from you? Because uh, you have sold four of your own businesses so far. I have. I've yeah. been lucky enough to make four successful exits. Um, small businesses, certainly, but uh, uh, transactions that had a substantial impact on my life. And um, it, it, it was a space I grew uh, very interested in as I was going through that process. And so landed at... Uh, to found uh, Exit Oasis designed to help small business owners uh, learn how to do the same. And how many of those businesses did you sell to private equity groups? <laughs> uh, let, let's see, zero. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the reason I wanted to have you on is because there was something that you had shared on LinkedIn where you were talking about uh, an article, I think, that you had come across that talked about, it was like an advice article where it was explaining the different ways that a person could exit their business. Yep. And and you kind of wrote a little explanatory, exp explainer article about that news piece where you kind of took apart some of the things that this article presented as being legit bona fide methods that everyday business owners needed to be well-versed in when it came to planning their exit. You want to give a little bit of a background of that article? What, what, what kind, where was it? What kind of website or magazine was it in? Oh, I, I, I referenced one in, uh, in the article on my, my, the front page of my website uh, that comes from Entrepreneur. They come from Inc. They come from all of the mainstream uh, business magazines. And um, I, I can remember when I started in this process, I would read those articles and, and as, you, as you mentioned, they would point out your most likely buyer. And here's what that one article listed as your most likely buyers, private equity, uh, employee, uh, your employees through an ESOP, mm -hmm. um, a family, uh, um, family office, a search fund, a holding company, all of these very technical, very um, fancy, uh, uh, potential buyers. I, and I was supposed to be knowledgeable about them if I ever wanted to sell my business. And so I didn't know anything about them. And so I started trying to teach myself. And I started by looking at how many of these groups did how many deals on a given year. And let's start with, uh, let's start with the ESOP. Um, Mm. David, how many ESOPs are there in the United States right now? I have no idea. <clears throat> I do know that they're more popular in some parts of the United States. I can tell you that <clears throat> I've probably worked on more than a couple hundred files over the course of my career. And I had the chance to work on my very first ESOP just before Christmas. It was in Canada. And being the very first time I'd ever had occasion to work on an ESOP, I quickly downloaded a book titled ESOPs in Canada, which I read over the course of a weekend just to make sure there wasn't anything super secret or special about these types of deals I didn't understand. Yep. 
And um, it was a great book because it really gave me an insight into how and why people do these deals. Um, it just it just doesn't happen that often. And I, I think most of the time, and this was a question that came up in the deal that I was working on, is I, they asked me to give an opinion of what the business was worth. And then I asked the question, well, how are the employees going to be making the investment to take over the business? Sure. And um, and that raised a lot of questions because, you know, the, the, I guess they were looking at this as a way to formulate basically having the business over the course of time buy out the shares of the seller to exit. Yep. Yep. But they hadn't really considered what new capital might be coming in. And so... You know, I, I don't know exactly what's going to happen in that deal. I, I haven't really talked with them in a while. But I, I think that they got caught up maybe in in learning about this stuff without being fully versed. And maybe that isn't actually what's going to end up happening in the end. Uh, 2018 is where numbers are available. Most recent year, um, 279 ESOPs were created in the U.S. in 2018. 279. Under 300. Under 300. There are a total of just over 6,000 ESOPs in the whole of the country. Right. Um, it is such a rare event. It is such a rare tool. And yet I met a business owner uh, a month ago whose entire strategy was built around creating an ESOP with his employees to buy out the company, he had six employees. And he had that information from a seminar he sat through from a counselor who told him about an ESOP. I, I, it just, it, it's one of these things that quite honestly, it gets me a little, um, gets me a little angry because we know that there's people out there selling these things and there's no problem mm -hmm. with that. Um, but when you look at an ESOP as a potential exit option for a small business owner, the odds of it happening are so minuscule that I feel very comfortable saying to any small business owner, you're never going to sell your business through an ESOP. You're also never going to sell your business through private equity. How do well, I know that? Well, th this, this is interesting because before our call today, uh, before this, this broadcast, I went and did some research because I was, I know there's private equity firms out there. I know people who have talked to me about private equity deals. I know that these things exist, that people yep. are doing them. They do. I, but I had no idea how big the market was. So I found a, a consulting report from McKinsey, big, well-known uh, uh, consulting firm. And it was about the private equity group market. They were looking at them as a, as a pool of maybe, maybe they're looking at them maybe as potential clients perhaps. Sure. But, but in this report, they they estimated that the size of the private equity industry had grown from 2006 to 2018 from about 4,000 to about 8,000 entities. Sure, sure. In the United States. Yep. So, so again, you know, do we know how many businesses are bought and sold every year? Do you have a figure maybe for the United States? 4,500. Private equity do 4,500 deals a year. Okay, so but do you know how many businesses are sold in total? Uh, well, I don't, and I don't know if anyone does. Because I, yeah. It is such a squishy number to try to get your hands around that anyone's guess is is is, is as good as mine. I I 
I'm a pretty strong believer that about 80% of businesses trade hands without any kind of intermediary. Yeah. And, and my own experience bears that out just with people I work with and talk to how many deals are being worked on just between buyers and sellers, and maybe even between business owners and their employees and their employees buy it, not through an ESOP, but the employees, you know, just buy it through a normal kind of deal. Sure. Um, and so biz by sell reported in 2019 that they knew 10, about 10,000 deals were done on their platform alone yep. and they're not the only online platform. So right. if we, kind of add up the other big platforms. Let's uh, maybe there were 25,000 done in that vein. Sure. That would indicate that maybe there's like uh, 125, 150,000 deals a year, maybe. Uh, maybe. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know how we get there. Right. It's uh, right? Um, you could be right. So, so then if 4,500 of them, if, if private equity does 4,500 deals, is that private equity buying small businesses? Well, most of the deals in that 4,500 are deals of over a hundred million dollars. So that gives so no. you, so, so no, exactly. No, it, it, again, <clears throat> it's, I was shocked when I started digging into this and it's not like I had to do an exhaustive search to, to find these things because again, the, the dominance of the content, the dominance of the messaging, um, it, in almost every article you see, these are the tools that get held out. As in, in, I get emails all the time. If you're if you're looking to sell your business, your your small business, one of your likeliest bidders is private equity. Really, it's private equity. Um, and again, I don't I don't blame private equity. I think they do good stuff and and can be a great option, but it applies to almost none of us. Well, and, and I think <clears throat> I think that's the the resounding message here too, because <clears throat> I had a guest um, come and speak to my business buyer adventure group coaching program, mm -hmm. and it was Richard Wilson from the Family Office Club, and he sure. runs a business where um, it's people that are in family offices and private equity groups that, uh, cool. largely before the pandemic, he was dry, he was uh, doing these live events where where like potentially a couple hundred people got together, you know? Sure. Uh, and when I was talking with him, um, one of the things that people should understand about these family offices is that that literally each one can be as unique as there are families out there. Sure. I mean, each one has got a mandate that is individual. They're all looking for certain things. Some of them are industry specific. Some of them are just looking to buy apartment buildings, for example, or mini storages or, or things like this. Yep. And so even when we talk about there being 8,000 private equity groups in the United States, according to McKinsey, um, many of them by definition may not be anywhere close to the market of small business owners because they're looking for completely different kinds of assets. Right, right, absolutely. And and again, the numbers, the family office exchange pegs the number of family offices at about 6,000 in the country. So how many of them buy small businesses? I, who knows, But but again, even when they do, we got to look at the definition of small business, right? Because when we talk private equity, when we talk these groups, they're looking for two, five, ten million dollars of EBITDA to scratch the surface. It, it's it's not going to be the average small business. The the sort of um, I've always referred to or referred to it. And I picked this up off someone else calling it the pig peg line, the private investment group, private equity group line was always half a million dollars of EBITDA. 
And the, and the reason why it had to be that number is because <clears throat> these groups are investors. They're not necessarily business operators. And so when they do a deal, they have to make sure there's sufficient cash flow to hire a professional manager that is probably going to cost them over a hundred thousand a year right. to take over that owner's role sure. and to run it for them. And then they still aren't really going to cash in until they figure out how to grow it. Cause they almost always have the same plan, which is to buy the business, grow it into a new tier of multiples so that they can then sell it at a higher right. multiple value. Right. <clears throat> and so, you know, Henry Lopez, for example, <clears throat> sorry, Mike, Sorry, everybody. A little oh, bit of a cough. Um, <clears throat> Henry Lopez and his partner, he was on the, the Christmas Eve special last year, and he told us yep. about his car wash. And so they had a car wash out in Colorado, and they sold it to a private equity group who was specifically buying car washes. Right. And so, so I know, like this is when I say, I know these deals get done. I know they're out there. I've never had my hands on one. Right. It's always been, you know, secondhand knowledge. Uh, of someone talking about it. But <clears throat> let's talk about that article. Let's talk about the article because this is what I think is interesting. And I think this is the big lesson from, from what we're talking about today. Earlier this morning, it was perfect timing. I got an email from a young woman in India who's got a business and she's looking to grow her business. She's looking for customers. And so she sends emails to guys like me who have a blog site with articles and things. And she sent me a portfolio of 20 articles. And her, her big headline was that her and her team are able to research any industry and create content that's charged by the word. Sure. Right. And so, <laughs> and, and this is why it's, it's, it's interesting that you're saying that all these different news sites and magazines and things keep talking about the same stuff. It doesn't surprise me because a lot of the content that's being pumped out for these things to keep new and fresh stuff on their blog sites and their news articles are probably being written by people who have no idea about the business. Right, right. They're yeah, going I, looking for articles that they are then recycling the content. Absolutely. And, and you know, I, I, I see these articles and I, I see the authors and sometimes I'll do a little research on them and it's not as if... I'm skeptical of, of, of their intent about the information they're providing in many cases. Um, I think they're targeting the content in, in those cases to the clients they want to attract. And mm -hmm. that is that lower middle market and above, um, higher EBITDA potential customer for that private equity firm. And the other thing that's interesting, in fact, I, over the last couple of weeks, I've had conversations with a, with a couple of private equity practitioners. And what was interesting was to hear the one talk. Um, and he said, well, I, you know, my, my churn, he said, I, I need to talk to a hundred deals a year. We figure if I do, if I talk to a hundred deals, um, maybe I'll find one. And he said, but that's nothing. He said, my buddy, who's also in private equity, his his mark tar his target is 365. He's supposed to review 365 year, or deals a year to find one, right? So again, 
there's a lot of people that might be touched by private equity who might call and say, hey, I might be interested in buying your business. And they peek and they scratch and they thanks, but no thanks. So, I mean, the, the impact here is probably exponentially higher than the deals that get done. Mm. The problem is, is that the potential is not. You know, it's it, the other two thing too, is you mentioned, what do you mean by small business? Yeah. And different people use the same words often to mean very different things. <clears throat> I always use the example of like, the government will define a small business often by the number of employees, for example, right? because, because that suits their purpose. Yep. But when I say small business, I actually, I prefer the term main street business because it creates a much clearer idea in someone's head sure. about what kind of business we're looking at. Not necessarily that it's a retail business, but it's a business with like 15 employees, you know, right. that kind of thing, right? Um, there's a, uh, you, the other sort of category we haven't touched on here yet are the search funds, right? And the search funds are based on a book that came out from Harvard business, uh, professors, um, where they talked about this idea of, you know, leaving the MBA program at Harvard. And instead of getting a job with a big business, you go look for a business to buy. Sure. And they, it's all about, it's the HBR guide to buying a small business. And a lot of people I've come across in my space have that book and they talk about the things in the book. And I was, I read that book. And every time someone mentions that book to me, I said, did you read the introduction? Because, <laughs> because in the introduction, those two professors that wrote the book said that a small business had revenues of 10 to $15 million. Right. Which is leagues beyond right. the average file that I ever see. Right. right. I mean, in my vernacular, that kind of business is a lower middle market business, which, you know, ties in with what you're saying about, about uh, some of these private equity guys. Yep. So it's, it, again, for the average small business owner, main street business owner, who is an owner operator, who is, you know, going to want to retire one day, or may suddenly have to sell because of some personal thing that happens, they're not on top of all this stuff uh, like you and I and other people that are in this industry. And so the danger is, is that they go and they do some big web search and they get one of these big high profile websites that feeds them this kind of stuff. Right. Right. Or they get the invitation to the three hour free lunch seminar where they learn about ESOPs or they, they get this deep dive and then they say, Hey, that sounds great. They put it aside, go back to running their business for the next 12 years until they're ready to sell. And now it's time for the ESOP. And what do you mean I don't qualify? Or what do you mean it's not going to? Um, these pegs are not solutions. They are, um, and, and I guess this isn't a bash private equity or bash any of these tools, right? These are great tools if you have the kind of company that's a good fit for what they do. We just have to remember how minuscule the, the number of those deals that get done are. And again, back to that original article uh, that we're talking about, you know what it didn't mention? Didn't mention an individual buyer. It didn't it's mention, incredible. it's incredible, right? This is your most likely buyer and they don't mention who the most likely buyer is, which is some guy or gal off the street that's got you know a, a, some money in savings, they're a corporate refugee, they're the, the most likely buyer. Yep. Yep. Someone who 
is got certain things maybe even in common with the seller, but just happens to be a younger person right. looking for that opportunity. Um, we, we have a few comments. Hey, Kevin, it's good to see you. Kevin's down in Florida and uh, enjoying the show. Anyone else have any questions for me or Mike? Uh, pop them into the into the the side um, of the comments there, and they'll pop up here. Um, what's going on with you? You're I see you pumping out stuff at Exit Oasis, sharing articles and things on LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, what does your practice look like these days? What kind of clients are you working with? It's been it's been good. Um, we're getting uh, we're getting a, a, a growth in interest. We've we've um, at the end of the year and the beginning of this year, we've seen a real uptick in conversations and new clients. Um, I don't. I, I always. I always um, hesitate to extrapolate from that. You know, is that does that mean that uh, people are thinking about this more? And I, I don't know if that's the case, but uh, um, there's been a, a, a good energy around um, the engagement, and that's uh, that's exciting. So, how about you? Uh, things, things this year are, are good. Um, last year was a busy year for me and that's what <clears throat> encouraged me to hire yet long. So congratulations. Um, yeah, thanks. And, and she's been doing a great job. I was just on a guest on a, one of the main things I want her to do is to, um, have me appear as a guest on other podcasts. Sure. And so I uh, was on one uh, last week and I'm recording another one next week. So it's it's great. I, a few years ago, I spent a lot of time doing that, and then I got busy doing work, and sure. didn't have time to do the promotional side. So that's what I've been focused on this year. Do you see much happening, David, in terms of overall macro? Are we uh, are we about to see that uh, uh, that large transition group either because they're closing because of COVID, or are they? Um, are oh. you seeing any of that yet? Yeah, what I'm what I'm seeing is that um, the entire world of small business has been fractured. There's there's three groups. There are the people who have had a big downturn because of of pandemic rules and COVID and all that kind of stuff. And uh, quite frankly, I don't hear much from them. I mean, the people who are in a position where they're going to be closing, they they usually realize that they're not going to be selling their business. Sure. Um, and then there are the people who seem to be par for the course. And once the chill left the air from, you know, the initial lockdown, and then they were able to show, you know, our business is pretty much normal, you know, deal flow seems to be carrying on for those people. And, and there was a bit of a chill last year, banking kind of seized up where bankers weren't sure where, which way things were going, but now things seem to be underway. And then there's this other new question is the people who had an expansion because of the pandemic and have made more money and had more revenues. Um, you know, now buyers are saying, well, yeah, I know you're doing great, but am I going to continue to do those numbers? And so just like we might have very creative deal making for people who've had a downturn, who, who, where the seller might want some kind of extra payment if things recover in the future. Sure. We're, we're also getting from these businesses that have grown buyers who want to put in a bit of creative deal making so that if the sales return to the old norm, that maybe they get some kind of discount on a note or something sure. like that. Sure. Um, Chin's got a question for us. What are the reasons a business owner might not want to sell on to his or her employees? 
you had employees at the first business you owned. You had a lot we did. of employees. Did you ever consider selling to them? You know, it's interesting. Over the course of several years, as we were thinking about an exit, I would make um, individual uh, outreach to key employees um, and always kind of introduced the subject and then backed away because I figured um, if the desire was there, the chase would be there too, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it was, uh, we, never, we never made that love connection with someone who had that ownership interest. And so that's why an outside buyer was, was, was our solution. And I think that's, I mean, to one potential answer to the, to the question is, is uh, obviously one of the keys if you're going to sell your business is you need somebody who has some cash available to do that. And that can be a challenge when you look internally sometimes, depending on the business. I just recorded a video earlier today that's going to be released next week. And the question was from an individual who wanted to um, secure a long-term commitment from an employee by making them an equity partner in the business. And I explained the pros and cons to that. And I got to tell you, most of the deals I've ever worked on where a seller wanted to sell to an employee, they didn't work out well. Hmm. Um, and usually it's, it's, because the business owner, um, you know, the things a business owner values, freedom, flexibility, making that investment, building that equity over time, the risk involved in putting one's capital in play, you know, the uncertainty, they, a lot of people will project, they'll just assume that other people get turned on by those same things. And the reality is that the vast majority of people who go out to earn a, a living they're not interested in those things. They, they want to sell their time. They want right. to know what they're responsible for and what they're going to do and when the paycheck is going to come. Yep. And, and we'll work very diligently at that and be very great contributors, but don't want that extra. And, and sometimes when em employees are, said, are told, you know, do you want the opportunity or asked if you do want the opportunity to buy the business, they might get excited about this idea. But when they start to really get into it and understand the risks that are involved and what they're going to have to do, I've seen a lot of those deals fall apart. Right. When business owners come to me and say, I think I want to sell to my employees, one of the suggestions I have to make is I'll, I'll say, did you ever have a real star employee who ended up leaving you because they were ambitious and wanted more? Right. Yep. Yep. That person might actually be a good buyer. Right. You know, they're no longer in the business. So if it doesn't work out with them, there's no ripple in the business. But if they were an ambitious person that wanted more, wanted to do more, wanted to achieve more, and they left you and you hated to see them go because they knew what they were supposed to do and they were a good performer, yep. go, find, go find out where they went. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. It, 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 you're not going to talk someone into this, right? And to, and to what I mentioned earlier, I would, I would present that potential and then I would step away because, again, I knew – if, if they were going to chase it, if they had that ownership interest, that's all I had to do. And, and to your point, if they have that ownership interest, they've, there's a good chance they've already left and gone somewhere else, either to pursue something them, themselves or to take that next step. Yeah, another question here from Brian. He asks, do ESOPs complicate buying and selling a business? Without a doubt, yes. <laughs> well, the... The thing that about an ESOP is that 
you are going to create this whole new tier of activity in the business to do with governance. Because as soon as you go from an individual or maybe a married couple that owns a business together to having this diversified ownership group, well, now you actually have to have those annual general meetings that everyone's supposed to have, but nobody does. And you're supposed to keep the corporate minute book updated properly. And you're supposed to actually have policies that say when you're allowed to fly first class or not. Whereas the individual business owner just decides how he wants to fly. Right. right, right. And so, um, you know, I don't have a lot of experience with ESOPs, but when I read that book, they were talking about things like, you know, you have to create a whole process by which employees understand when they can buy in shares or how they're going to receive shares, maybe in exchange for doing extra work or achieving certain goals. And then some of these ESOP programs might decide to do what's called a mini market once or twice a year, where people that are part of the program can submit their election to either sell or buy shares. And then you have someone who coordinates the market trying to match those orders. And then you have to do often you have to determine a value for the business every year, because as people want to enter and leave the plan, then there's no stock market exchange for privately held businesses. And these ESOPs are you're owning shares in what is a private illiquid business. And so a lot of them will require a mechanism for annual revaluation of the business. And only 279 of them were even done in 2018, right? So it's it's all this knowledge that's out there. And, and you mentioned earlier, I haven't had a chance to, I haven't had a chance to touch many. Who has, right? I, I, I mean, you, you do 279, you divide by 50, there's three or four in every state every year, right? I mean, it's... <laughs> Why? But again, Brian's question is a legitimate one and is a real one, but I would challenge the premise. Why are we asking it? Why does it matter? If for small business owners, this isn't something we should spend time learning about. Now, I know of several businesses here in my local region that everybody holds up as examples of employee owned businesses, mm -hmm. but they're not ESOPs. Sure. What, what they are is someone wanted to exit the business and the top cadre of managers went together right. and became, became yep. a private equity group, basically. Right. They did the deal. Yep. And so you've got key employees, supervisors. It's not open to everybody. It's right. just that group. And I see this quite often in, in things like um, construction companies. Uh, where maybe you have a bunch of people who are engineers or architects or things like this, people who do the design work and planning, where they might have for, there was one I worked on a couple of years ago. Uh, it was a concrete construction company. They had four owners. They needed my help to evaluate their, their equipment, their machinery and equipment, because they wanted to get the highest possible bank leverage they could. So basically they borrowed money from the bank to lever up the company. Sure. They, paid out the excess cash and dividends to the current owners. This had the effect of reducing the value of the equity because they had one guy who wanted to leave and another person wanted to take their place. Sure. And so it allowed the buyer to buy in at kind of the lowest point. All the other people got a cash event. They got to take home a big dividend check. And then there they were all back at square one with a giant bank loan that they had to work out from under and probably 
several years later before some other person in that group was going to do the same maneuver. Right. Right. And so it's not an ESOP. It is employee owned. There's just 101 different flavors of how you could put something like this together. That's right. And that's why you start with what is, what's our goal, right? What, what do we want to, what do we want to create? Not, not technically, but what is the environment and the opportunity we want to create? Now let's go out and figure what the best tool is to do that. Problem is, is we have a tendency as owners to do it in reverse, right? Oh, I've learned about ESOPs. I've learned about this. I've learned about that. But there's a hundred variations on that theme out there. Yeah. So, great point. Well, awesome, Mike. I mean, it's good to see you again. If, if people want to find you online, what's the best place to go? They can find me on LinkedIn or at exitoasis.com. So uh, yeah, I'd love to connect. Yeah, it's a, Exit Oasis is a great place. I know that I've looked on there a few times and found uh, some very handsome actors embedding embedded <laughs> videos. Over there. That's right. That's right. There's a little bit of David C. Barnett on ExitOasis.com. Oh, I got one last question here. Uh, Jordan saying, can you share what influence COVID-19 and 2020 financials are having in deal structure and multiples? Also, Difference between what a private equity offer might look like versus the private individual. Oh, that's a great question. Yeah. Let's uh, let's take. Well, we got it in two parts. What are the influence COVID and twenty twenty financials are having in deal structure? I, I, I keep asking that question. I'm still curious what banks are going to be doing when they look at twenty twenty. What are you hearing? I so far have seen one set of twenty twenty financials that fully encompass the the pandemic. Yep. So amongst um, big companies, end of April tends to be popular for a, a financial year end. So there's a lot of 2020 financial statements out there for April 2020 that, of course, don't tell the whole story. There's sure. you know, just the, the beginning of the, the whole thing. But um, I worked with one client and they did an, I had done an evaluation on their business uh, for the last two years. Every year they sent me their financials. They want an update. They had a downturn in their business for 2020 because of the pandemic, but the last four months of 2020 were back on track, okay. very similar to 2019 results. So I just discounted the whole performance of that year because it was obvious to me that the business had returned to sure. what it once was. Um, and, and that's the real story is 2020 could be the same up or down a lot of people are going to have this big question mark, Jordan, about 2020 until I think we have the 2021 numbers. Yeah. What's well, interesting, I've got, I've got one that's the exact opposite, David. I've got a, uh, I'm working with a buyer who's looking at a business that has seller's discretionary earnings of here, here, and then 2020 is up here, and they are pricing on 2020. Right. That's the, that's the asking price is based on 2020 and it's it's two times what it was the previous years. And so to your earlier comment, is there some way it, it might maybe it's worth what they're asking if the if the volume continues. But is the vol nobody knows if the volume is going to continue. What what I've been hearing from all the people who kind of are part of this industry is that the prevalence of earnouts and performance-based structures and deals has really gone up. Sure. And in the United States, if someone's going to use an SBA financing, there has to be a fixed purchase price. So what they're just doing it in reverse. There's like a big note, which 
has offsets or or erosion clauses that cause it to shrink if certain things aren't hit. Sure. And you know, the second part of Jordan's question, the difference between what a private equity offer might look like versus the private individual, that's a great question because for the my greatest interaction with private equity groups has been when I've been working with buyers who've been in a competitive situation where one of the other buyers was a private equity group. And what I have consistently always seen from private equity is they tend to swing cash around like a big bat. They, they like to make their offers as attractive as possible by having a much larger cash component maybe than individual buyers are able to put together. Um, but I haven't worked on enough of them to really say for sure if there's a consistent difference between them. Sure. And I think I think one of the interesting things is, as you mentioned earlier, they can have different interests and goals, right? I had a conversation a couple of weeks ago with a private equity group whose main focus was um, profitability, yes, but community uh, building as well. And so they were looking for businesses that wanted to sustain their presence in their home community, keep the employees, not be subject to... Um, you know, uh, being torn apart by a, 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 a private equity group. So their focus was we buy, we build where it is. Again, that limited the number of potential targets, but what it meant for the buyer who, you know, was the 40 year owner who was serious about the investment he had made in the community and uh, he or she could say, I'm going to take a slightly lower price, but know that the legacy that I want to leave is still living on. So it, it really depends on the group. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that's the key is it's hard to paint something like all the, like private equity with a brush because each one is individual. Each one has its own mandate, its own goals, its own, you know, managers who have their own idea about what they're trying to do. And, and so, you know, it, it's hard. They they are buyers. They often have greater resources than an individual. That's probably the the safest way to put it. Sure. Um, because they you know accumulate investment typically from high net worth people. Um, we've got Victor saying thanks for the video to the both of us. Thanks, Victor. Uh, it's great to have you join us. And and then uh, Chin says nice chat. Greetings from the UK. I think Victor's over in the UK too. So it's great to see we've got uh, people joining us from all corners of the world. It's and late over there right now. What's that? I said it's late over there right now. They're burning uh, we're a midnight oil. We're, we're worth staying up for. All That's right. right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks, Mike. ExitOasis.com. And for everyone who's watching, don't forget, hit like, please. It really helps the YouTube algorithm. And uh, hit subscribe if you're not a subscriber to the channel. Uh, would you believe almost... I think it's 75 or 80% of the people that watch my videos are not subscribers. Is that right? 15,000 yeah. subscribers just the other day I saw. Yeah. That's I fabulous. Think, Congratulations. Well, thank you. But I, I think one of the reasons is because a lot of the times people might watch my videos maybe on LinkedIn or other platforms where they're not sure. you know, subscribed. So I don't know. And uh, Brian's down in Boston. He says, thank you too. And California. Now everyone's competing to let us know where they are. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see you later. Have a good night, everyone. Bye-bye. Take care.